This sermon is brought to you by Shofar East London. Together, living out the fullness of Christ. We hope you enjoy this message. Before I start, I just want to ask a question. How many of you, when you look back on this past year, kind of just feel like you've been in a war? Can I get a show of hands? You've come to the right place today. Because that's where, that's where I'm going to be sharing from, because that's just been my experience as well. And I'm going to be sharing a journey that I've been on and, and, and a couple of the things that God has shown me. And in my case, it's just been a season of, of a very difficult time working in the construction industry. So I was fighting battles on multiple fronts um, with the economy and things being, being as they are. So it's stress and anxiety at work, and later on, progressed to burnout and chronic fatigue. And, um, and for about 20 months, it was almost as if no medical treatment, no amount of prayer, nothing that I tried was making any kind of meaningful difference to my circumstances. And sometimes life just is like that. Sometimes our life feels more like a trench warfare stalemate than it feels like a victory procession that the Apostle Paul writes about. So... I kind of console myself by, by telling myself, well, at least, you know, major wars and conflicts always make like a good backdrop for the best movies. <laughs> Maybe some, someday somebody will make a movie of my life. But, but I've always enjoyed films that are set against like major historical conflicts. You know, you know the ones where the Nazi scientists are scrambling to try and come up with this key breakthrough that will enable them to, to, to produce a brand new weapon of mass destruction that's going to shift the momentum of the battle and of the war into their favor. And when we experience life like that, like it's a war and like it's a battle all the time, it's easy for us to actually begin to fall into that kind of, that kind of mindset. The mindset that says that somewhere out there is, is a weapon or a revelation or something that I've yet to acquire, and if I can only get my hands on that thing, then things are going to begin to change. But I'm also here to tell you this morning that that can be dangerous territory for us to, to venture into. It can be a dangerous way of thinking. When you think about it, the story of, of the fall of mankind is basically the, it's the story of Adam and Eve being tricked. They were conned into trying to acquire something that they already had. Are you with me? If you remember, the serpent came to Eve and asked her all about the trees and what you're allowed to eat, and Eve gave, her, gave the serpent the right answer. and said, no, we can eat all of the trees, anything, except for that one in the middle. We can't eat of that one, because God said, the day that we eat of that one, we will surely die. And so the serpent played his hand, his bluff, and he said, you won't surely die, because God knows in the day that you eat of that tree, you'll become like him, and you'll be able to know the difference between good and evil. And so Eve looked at the fruit, and she ate it, and she gave to Adam, and he ate, he ate it as well. What was the major problem with that statement that the serpent made to Eve? It's, it's more than one, but I believe the major problem is in him saying, God knows that you will become like him when you eat it. But God had made Adam and Eve and said, let us make them in our image. They were already made in God's image. So, like I said, the story of the fall of mankind is the story of Adam and Eve being conned, being tricked in trying to acquire something 
that they already have. And so it's extremely important for us as the church to not get confused about what we have, what are the weapons that are in our arsenal. Amen. So, Hank Kleinschmidt shared a beautiful message last weekend. I don't know if any of you were here, but he shared about the refreshing of Israel and how at the time when Jesus was born, there were many people that were living with this anticipation in their hearts, expecting that the Messiah would soon arrive. But when Mary and Joseph came with the young boy Jesus to the temple, it was only Simeon and Anna that actually recognized that this little baby boy on Mary's hip was the Messiah. He was the hope of all nations. He was what everybody's been waiting for, but only they recognized it. And so in the same way, I'm here to tell you that this the super weapon that you've been longing for to change the course of your battle is something that is actually already in your arsenal. It's not something that's out there. And when we begin to embrace God's perspective of the battlefield, then we'll begin to see and understand the awesome power that he has vested in his word. The long-range firepower that God has vested in his word, and then we'll begin to learn how to wield it, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word, to, to wield it with the kind of faith that can actually move mountains. Amen. You know, why would we let ourselves get drawn into a knife fight when we have in our arsenal the kind of weaponry that would allow us to engage the enemy at a distance and take him out before it gets down to a dirty, scrappy knife fight? So I'm wanting to introduce you to this super weapon. Are you ready for it? That's the serve, yeah. Take, take your Bible in your hand and turn to your neighbor and use your Ace Ventura voice and say, you know, you can put somebody's eye out with this thing. <laughs> this is a dangerous weapon. This is powerful. And I'm, and I'm so excited to say and to, and to see that many of us are beginning to get excited about the Word of God in a new way in this church. And I believe that God is wanting to reveal so much more to us about what He has vested in His Word. You know, it's easy to get excited about the Word of God when we read scriptures like Matthew chapter 8, verse 16. And it talks about how Jesus went about and He would cast out evil spirits with a word, like, like with a snap, instant results. And He healed all who were sick. I mean, we read that and we think, come on, that's what I'm talking about. That's what, gets, that's what gets us excited. And it's easy for us to begin to think that instant results equate power. And yes, it's true, and it's legitimate. A scripture like that, it's a wonderful demonstration of the goodness of God, of the authority of God, and the power of God. And not only that, it's also a promise. It's a beautiful promise to you and I who believe that we'd be able to do the same things that Jesus did. But this is, this is where the new part that I believe God is wanting us to focus on comes in. This is not the full picture. When it comes to the Word of God, this is not all that there is to it. I'm wanting to introduce to you the Word of God today as a seed. It might come as a surprise to some of us, maybe not, but Scripture often refers to the Word as a seed. I've got, a, I've got one Scripture reference up there. It's 1 Peter 1, chapter 1, verse 23. 
For through the eternal and living word of God, you have been born again, and the seed that he planted within you can never be destroyed, but will live and grow inside of you forever. I want you to note the word grow. For somebody who is as powerful as God is, it's interesting to look at how he does things and to see how committed he is to the process of growing. And this isn't the only reference. The parable that Jesus told about the sower, it very clearly spells it out, it frames the word of God as the seed. In fact, the very first messianic prophecy in the Bible, just after the fall of mankind, when God says to the serpent that the woman's seed, capital S, will crush your head. It refers to Jesus. Jesus is the word become flesh, and he's also the seed that was prophesied that would come and destroy the enemy. But the thing about the seed is that it it has to get put into the ground, and it has to germinate, and then painstakingly grow from a tiny little thing until eventually it gets to look like something substantial, something that can actually make a difference. Take Moses, for example. The Israelites were heavily oppressed in Egypt under the Pharaoh, and so they were crying out to God, night and day, I can imagine. And what, what was God's solution? You could say that he planted a seed in the little basket on the Nile River in the baby boy Moses, and that baby boy had to grow up in the palace, reach the age of 40, and then go off into the wilderness and tend his father-in-law's sheep for another 40 years before he gets to the point where he actually walks into Pharaoh's courts and challenges him and says, the great I am has sent me, and he says, let my people go. Interesting. Another one, maybe it's my personal favorite when it comes to this kind of illustration, is the the birth of Samson. The Israelites had been oppressed by the Philistines for 40 years, the Bible says, and as was their habit, they let go of their backsliding and their idols and they started to cry out to God again because this was getting really, really difficult, 40 years of oppression. I mean, we we don't know that, being militarily oppressed and, and so, yeah, this angel appears to the wife of Manoah. Now, the people that know me, they know that I tend to have a very vivid imagination. So I often see these scenes play out in front of me, and I see them play out in terms of, like, Disney cartoon characters. So bear with me just for a second, because what I see in front of me is, is the wife of Manoah, like a Disney princess, you know, with the big eyes and the lashes. And, and so she sees the angel... And recognizes, God must have heard our prayers. Mr. Angel, I'm so glad that you're here. Things have been getting so hard. But I'm so relieved. You know, the Philistines are camped over here, over here, and over here. I can't wait to see what you're going to do. What, what are you going to do? Are you going to rain down giant hailstorm balls of ice? Maybe some fire and brimstone? Ooh, hemorrhoids. Give them all hemorrhoids. <laughs> and the angel's like, you know... Yes, that's all been part of the playbook before, but this is the plan that I've got for you from God. You're going to become pregnant, and you're going to have a little baby boy, and you're going to have to raise him with these very strict rules and very strict diet, and one day when he's big, he's going to lead the Israelites and deliver you from the Philistines. That wouldn't feel like good news to me. I'm I'm sorry. And, 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 and the way that I've experienced life this year, 
I've of, I often would look at what the Word says about, about health and the promises of God's provision, and I would see these things, and I would see God's faithfulness spread over a long-term plan, and I would just cry out to God and say, God, you don't understand. I'm desperate now. I need things to change now. I don't have 18 or 20 years in me. I've, I, I don't think I've got 20 days in me. Something needs to give. Something needs to change. Now, please, can you make another plan? Can anybody relate with that? Was it just me? <laughs> Something needs to change. And what God has begun to show me is, is that this is the heavy artillery. This is the big, big weaponry. Because God's weaponry is designed for us to make a much bigger impact than just the battle that I'm facing today. So I want, I want you to remember that the battle that you face today, it's not just about you, and it's not just about your victory. That's why the weapons of our warfare aren't just designed to impact the battle that we're in. The weapons of our warfare are actually designed to impact the battlefield. The most powerful weapons of our warfare are designed to impact the topography of the battlefield because one day when you and my, your and my battle is over, there's going to come another generation and they're going to face very similar battles to the ones that we faced. And depending on how faithful we were in employing the weapons of our warfare, their battle is either going to be harder or easier than ours was. So keep this picture in your mind. We, we want to not just engage the enemy and win a victory for ourselves. We actually want to be faithful with the weaponry that God has given us, and we want to impact the spiritual landscape. If you look at, at history, especially the way that wars were fought in the Old Testament, a good example is the city of Tyre. Um, it's mentioned in the Gospels, Jesus talks about Tyre and Sidon. Now Tyre was a, an island city, so... It was a rocky island about one kilometer off the shore, and it had 45-meter-high walls going straight down into the ocean. And it was believed for most of the Bible times that the city of Tyre was an impregnable fortress. There was no way to take it. And they became very proud and very arrogant. But in Ezekiel, God actually spoke and prophesied to the city of Tyre and said, you, you, you will fall. Many nations will come against you, amongst others Nebuchadnezzar, and many are going to try, and eventually the city of Tyre is going to fall because the city of Tyre rejoiced when they saw Jerusalem fall to Babylon. And so, I hope you don't mind a quick little history lesson, but Alexander the Great came along and he was very annoyed with the, with the inhabitants of the city of Tyre. And so he brings his army and they're sitting across this channel looking at the city that they want to destroy. And what does Alexander the Great do? He decides to change the topography of the battlefield, and he gets his engineers to design and build a causeway to cover the hundred kilometer, sorry, sorry, one kilometer, to cover the one kilometer of channel so that he could get siege towers to the wall, eventually breach the wall, and as prophesied in the book of Ezekiel, the city of Tyre fell. Now, that's, that's a good image of what we are actually called to do. Many times we we stand on the side of that channel and we fire our arrows. We do what we know to do. 
and we can see that we're not reaching, we're not making any kind of impact, but the thought doesn't occur to us that we have the authority and the arsenal to change the topography of the battlefield so that we can move to a place where we become effective. So, you would have noticed that my message this morning is called The Power of a Seed. So, the, the way that we change the topography of our battlefield is that we get to plant a seed, the Word of God, the promises of God, and, and when it grows up to be a big, powerful tree, it changes the course of the battle. If we're lucky for us, we might not get to sit in the shade of the trees that we plant, but it will make a difference for the generations to come, and it will make a compound difference. Another quick little history lesson. Again, if you don't mind, I'm, I'm afraid you don't have a choice. <laughs> but, but a man called J. Serling Morton moved to the, to the state of Nebraska in 1854. And apart from being a nature lover and a keen gardener, he arrived in Nebraska and he, and he, and he noticed that the treeless flat plains of that state wasn't going to lend itself to the kind of economic growth that we were seeing elsewhere in America. And he recognized that in order for agriculture to flourish, they need windbreaks, otherwise the soil and the seedlings would just blow away. And in order for infrastructure development to flourish, they needed raw building materials. So he used his influence as a journalist, and he lobbied private individuals, organizations, whoever he could find, and influenced them to begin to plant more trees. Now, I've never been there, but they tell me if you visit Nebraska today, you would never guess that the landscape was a limitation 150 years ago because they planted so many trees. And this J. Henry Morton, he's the father of what we know as Arbor Day. That's how the story of Arbor Day originated. And so he might never have got to sit in the shade of those trees that he planted, but he made the battle a completely different thing for the generations that followed after him. So I came across this, this really cool Chinese proverb. It says, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. <laughs> the second best time to plant a tree is today. So how about we stop looking at the battles that, that are facing us, whether that be in, in, in your family, in our community, in our city, in our nation, and we stop trembling at the magnitude of the problems, the kind of problems that we'll never solve in our lifetime. But we actually resolve to go away from here and go plant some trees. Amen. So, just to give you an example, what happens, you know, I'm, I'm speaking in beautiful figurative terms. Maybe the practical people among us are sitting here wondering, okay, well, what, you know, what, what do we more while we're in the realm of the figurative? And I want to say to you that David is a good example of a man who knew the shade of a tree. And the effect of that is that his perspective on the same circumstances was completely different to those of his peers. So when the rest of the nation of Israel were trembling in their boots because of this giant champion of a man coming out from the Philistine garrisons to taunt them, David arrives on the scene and he says... Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he thinks that he can talk like this to the armies of the living God? Who does he think he is? Because from my perspective, he's crossed a line. It doesn't matter how big or how strong I am. I know who God is. I know that man has crossed a line and he's going down. 
That's the effect of having sat in the shade of a tree while he was shepherding his father's flocks and, and he was spending time in the presence of God and in the Word of God. If you want an indication of, of David's relationship with the Word of God, just go read Psalm 119. It might also give you an indication of your relationship with the Word of God because it's quite a long read. <laughs> if you make it through in one go, you're definitely on the right track. So, so I'm here to say that the church of God needs to begin to introduce more trees to the spiritual landscape. We tend to focus on one immediate crisis after the other, and we try to use the weapons of our warfare for our benefit and for our immediate relief. But what are we leaving as a legacy for the generations that are coming behind us? There's so many problems that we are faced with. You know, I could ask, what are the limitations of your landscape? What are the limitations of our landscape in the city? Is our nation crippled by corruption? Is our youth unemployed and they're straining under the pressure of a prevailing negative culture? Are our businesses struggling? How about we, we stop being fearful or negative or despairing and hopeless and resolve to go plant some trees? Even if we don't get to sit in the shade of the trees that we plant, we're going to set up a future generation to win victories that we never could. It's like Howard Stark said to his son, Tony Stark, in Iron Man 2. I'm limited by the technology of my generation. But you, Tony, you're going to figure it out. We get to do that for the generation that comes after us, as long as we remember to think not just of ourselves and our immediate battle that we face. Amen. So I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Some other translations talks about speculations. So these arguments, these speculations, essentially what they are, is they are thoughts and ideas that are arranged in some kind of logical order for the purpose of opposing the true knowledge of God. So a stronghold, I need you to see this in, in terms of the landscape of the spirit, it's the opposite of a tree. A tree gives life, the shade of a tree gives shelter, but a stronghold offers structure and a place for the enemy to hide. Whether that be sin, lust, pride, fear, any of those things. And maybe, maybe you're sitting here and maybe you're feeling frustrated at your inability to walk in victory in a certain area of your life. It's like, it doesn't matter how hard you try, it's like you keep on getting sabotaged or ambushed by sin in this certain area of your life. Despite your best intentions and your best efforts, it seems to just happen again and it blindsides you every time. Maybe there's just a stronghold in the way that you think, that enables the enemy to, to hide, hide and lie in wait. Can you remember what God said to Cain when he spoke to him about his attitude towards Abel? He said, sin lies in wait, crouching like a tiger, and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And so, so what we're meant to do is we're not meant to occupy ourselves with trying to get better at a knife fight with this 
enemy that jumps out and ambushes us from behind a, from behind a stronghold. That's not the idea of our warfare. Our, our weapons, like the scripture says, they're not carnal, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. So we pull down the stronghold, all of a sudden the enemy's guy has nowhere to hide, and then we can take him out. We don't have to, we don't have to do the knife fight thing. That's, that's not being clever. It's not being effective. So, eventually, now I get, I get to the, the practical part, how, how do we plant trees? And, and in order for me to get there, I'm, I'm just wanting to share a little overview of, um, of the last couple of years of my life. And I'm going to start roughly three years ago. It was somewhere in March in 2017. And I was driving to work one morning, and I just felt the Holy Spirit speak to my heart, and, and He said, I want you to prophesy and say that today is going to be a good day. And so... I was agreeable to that. So I drove to work that day saying, thank you, God, that today is going to be a good day. Thank you that this is the day that you have made. I can rejoice in it because you've said that it's going to be a good day. Now, I started that job in the beginning of 2011, and for the first couple of years, things couldn't have gone better. My clients were sending emails to my bosses saying how happy they were with with the projects and the work that I was doing for them. The order book was growing to the extent that we had to increase our capacity in the East London office. Things, and it was without me really even trying. It was almost embarrassing. It's like God was showing off or something. And on top of that, I was reporting to management who knew me, and they knew the contributions that I'd made to the company up until that point. And I was reporting on projects that were healthy. I mean, it was, it was such a pleasure to go to work at that time, but unfortunately, most of the projects that were coming in were Eskom projects. And so when Eskom suddenly and catastrophically ran out of money, all of a sudden that very nice-looking order book disappeared overnight. And at the same time, there was a lot of restructuring and changes happening in our company. And in a very short space of time, I went from that scenario to reporting to management who didn't know me Hardly ever set foot in the Eastern Cape, had no idea of the, of the local context, and I was reporting on a completely different set of problem projects that I had inherited because my big order book had suddenly disappeared and we had to close it down. And so naturally, I was not happy. And I would say that to God from time to time. God, this is not cool. But in general, I try to approach it like I do most problems in life. Maybe it's a cultural thing. My solution was just to try harder. It's not always the right solution. But that's the background for me driving to work that morning, hearing God say, today is going to be a good day. And so by 9 a.m. that morning, I'd been in a conference call, and for the first time I'd heard that the company wasn't so keen on the future of the East London office anymore. And so later that day, I spent a bit of time with God, and I, and I got to ask God, you know, you said it was going to be a good day. And it doesn't always happen like this, but I felt immediately, I felt God's response. I felt God say, well, do you like your job? Do you want to keep it? And then I realized, no, I don't like my job. I've been asking you for something better for a long time. This is a good day. <laughs> so I understood that God was saying to me through this setup, that he was aligning me with something new, something else that he, that he had chosen for me. 
And it would have been easy for me to say, well, stuff this, I don't need this uncertainty in my life. I've got a family to look after. I've got a marketable CV. I can just find myself something better. And I don't need to worry about how this is all going to pan out. It would have been quite easy to think that I could do that. But I opted for, for the latter option, and I put my trust in God. And on the one hand, you could, you could say, well, well done. Give yourself a pat on the shoulder. But also in the process, I took a lot of the, the strain and the burden of trying to make these failing projects work onto myself. And so along with the stress and anxiety, my health started to deteriorate as well. And I went from being quite a keen runner to being basically like one of these park walkers. I couldn't even, couldn't even run a park run, which was devastating for me because I, I used to love running up mountains and doing ultra trails. It's amazing spending time with God out there. And, uh, and so for the past 20 months, I've actually been going through this repeating cycle where I'd go from faith to hope to disappointment to despair lie down on the ground until you start to see that this doesn't help anybody. You kind of get back up, and the cycle starts again. Faith, hope, disappointment, despair. Throw a tantrum, lie down on the ground. After a while, you realize not helping anybody. So you pick yourself back up again, and you throw yourself at the problem again with faith, all the hope that you can muster. And, that, and so this carried on. And in September of this year, while I was again at one of the lowest lows of the cycle, I can remember it was a, it was a Thursday and I, and I had a dream. And in this dream, I was walking in the street. And I just opened my mouth to say to God, I'm lost. I've got nothing. I don't have any faith. But as I opened my mouth to say that, I could feel electricity suddenly just coursing through my body. And straight away, I remembered the verse where God says, before you can open your mouth to cry out to me, I heard you. And so I thought, wow, that... This must be my breakthrough. This must be my encounter. This must be what I've been longing for for so long. And so I had a lot of hope and anticipation that maybe the next day I'd be able to see some kind of difference in my circumstances. I'd be telling everybody that, that I would shave my beard when, I, when I'm able to go for a run again. And so, so I... I tried it again, maybe every, every odd month I would try and go for a run, and if it was clear that nothing had changed, I would just be disappointed again. And so that, that dream was on a Thursday, and then I struggled through a difficult Friday and a difficult weekend. And so by the end of that weekend, I had now had it with God, because how, how can you tease me with something like this? I, I really thought this was not it. What, what, more, what more should I do? And, uh, and I'd already committed to be at a prayer meeting that Monday evening at Andre and Sonica's house. So I was there kind of just to go through the motions because I was not a happy chappy. And at the prayer meeting, all of a sudden, I just felt God speak to me. And he said to me, no, that wasn't your breakthrough. 
But that was your promise. And the promise is as good as the breakthrough if you understand who the promiser is. So from there I realized I shouldn't be waiting until I can see in the circumstances that I'm healed and then I can tell everybody, hey, look, I've shaved my beard because I'm healed. I should, on the strength of the promise, go home and shave my beard and then go out for a run. And if it was terrible, just resolve to go out for a run again the next day and the day after that. And to, and to take that promise and stick it in the swirl of faith and to not walk away from it and not withdraw my faith from that seed because in the first day, two days, three days, a week or month, whatever the case may be, I'm not seeing anything because that's not how trees work. And so this is what I want to share in terms of how to plant a tree. Firstly, we need to receive the promise. I need to receive it for myself. I count myself very lucky in that God gave me this very vivid dream. It's like a rhema word promise. But there's so many promises of God that's written in scriptures, and and they are just as much for you and for me as a rhema promise like that. Then what we need to do is we need to meditate on that promise. Don't just give it a cursory glance. Meditate on it. Many of us don't know what that means, but I think it means that you, that you think about the implications of that promise. It's like I have to think about, okay, if God says that the promise is as good as the breakthrough, then I need to begin to act like somebody who's been healed. I need to go shave my beard because I told everybody I'd shave my beard when I'm healed of this chronic fatigue. And then I need to go out for a run. And after the run, irrespective of how terrible it felt and how slow it was, I need to embrace the emotions that are tied to the promise, not the emotions that are tied to my experience. And I need to resolve to do that again and again and again. And if I don't get to sit in the shade of the tree that I planted, that's fine. But my children will. Amen. So, another big factor that, that led to this, this sort of turnaround was that um, Andre gave me some, some reading homework to do. He, he came to me the one day and he felt, he said that he felt that I must go read F.F. Bosworth, Christ the Healer. And, you know, when, you, when you're feeling low and hopeless and somebody comes and gives you reading homework to do, it doesn't always feel so like it. It kind of felt to me like I'm trying to ride this horse, but I'm not even on the horse. I'm being dragged behind it with one foot hooked on a stirrup. And your book that talks about posture and knaping it between your legs is just not going to work for me because it doesn't help solve the problem that I have. But anyway, I got over myself and I started to read this book and something amazing started to happen. As I was reading the book, I was seeing all of these small little building blocks of truth. None of them were new to me, but as they were put next to each other in sequence, they started to form a much bigger and a stronger structure, and pretty soon it, get, got to the, it gets to the point where I realized there's no other logical and rational conclusion except for me to believe that God desires for his children to be healed, not later, now. And sometimes it's just a case of us having to stand on that promise. But it's, it's not 
It's not like sickness needs to serve any purpose in my life. God can do whatever. He makes all things work together for our good, but he doesn't need sickness to do that. And, and so it reminded me of, of a scripture that's for a long time been one of my favorites, Matthew chapter 16. Understanding unlocks faith. See, Jesus had just spoken to the disciples and he, and he said to them, be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they were about to climb into the boat. And so the disciples, being the highly learned fellows that they were, assumed that Jesus can't be meaning what he's saying. Surely there must be something else. And so they started reasoning among themselves, maybe it's because he knows that we didn't bring enough bread, and this is his way of rebuking us. And so Jesus says to them, Oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand? Or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up, nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up. Jesus is saying to the disciples, we know you're going to take two and two and put it together. If we didn't bring any bread on this boat, how is that a problem? Based on what you've seen me do, how is that a problem? Surely that's not what I was talking to you about. And so understanding unlocks faith. When we put the building blocks of truth next to one another and we begin to see how they interlink and form a bigger structure, that begins to unlock faith. That it's just on a different level to what, to what we know and what we experience when we, when we hear somebody else say it. It's one thing for you to hear me say this, even. But if, if you take the scripture, look at the truth, think about it, put that one next to another one and begin to see how they interlink and think about the implications and make it your own, it's going to unlock faith that will take you to a whole new level. So being faithful and diligent in planting the seed of God's word in the soil of our hearts means that we take the time to apply our minds to the simple truth of the word and we meditate on the implications thereof for us and our family and our community, our nation. And when we do that, it'll often be clear that there's no real like one-year or five-year or even like ten-year plan that seems possible in the natural to bring our reality, what we experience, into alignment with the promises of God's Word. But the fact that a tree takes more than one generation sometimes to mature has never stopped visionary people from taking the time to plant the tree. So like the Chinese proverb says, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago, but the second best time to plant a tree is today. Amen. So, just lastly, before I close, I want to read from Matthew chapter 17, verses 19 and 21. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not drive it out? So this was after Jesus took the three disciples up onto the mountain while they were away a father brought his epileptic son to the other disciples and asked him to heal him of his epilepsy. And when Jesus and the other three disciples came down from the mountain, there was this altercation going on. And what transpired was that the other nine disciples weren't able to cast out this demon. And so Jesus says some very challenging things. Oh, you wicked and perverse generation, how long shall I endure with you? And then he heals the son so the disciples then come to Jesus and say, why could we not drive it out? 
And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith. A lot of translations says, because of your unbelief. But the, this is the New American Standard Bible. The, the littleness of your faith, I believe, is actually quite a, very, it's quite a good translation because it, it doesn't really ex- exclusively refer to the magnitude of the faith of the disciples. It actually also refers to the duration of the faith. So many times we step out in faith and then we look at our circumstances and if the circumstances don't change immediately, we, we withdraw our faith. And it's not that the magnitude of our faith wasn't enough. It was the duration of our faith that was the problem. Amen. So with, with that, I'm wanting to close. Can you stand with me? And I'm going to close first in prayer. And I, I do believe we have a little bit of time. So if, if this word is spoken to you, if it's challenged you, if, if, if you want to respond to it and say to God, God, I'm, it's not good enough for me to just live and fight my battles for myself. I'm wanting to learn how to make an impact on the spiritual landscape around me so that the generations that come after me have an easier battle. Thank you for listening. Find more on Shofar East London's podcast channel. Let's do life together.